Exodus 20. Read what should be most familiar words to us. And as I said this morning, my thoughts are to open our evening Sabbath this year with some thoughts on the Sabbath itself. But reading this record of the Decalogue, Exodus 20 and verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that His fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, And Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice that are on thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen, In all places where I record my name will I come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it out of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. We'll end reading, and we trust again the Lord to bless and prosper the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. 
Our Heavenly Father, tonight we're happy to join with your people, singing hymns and songs of testimony and praise. And we ask that even these would have set the tone in our very hearts for coming together around the Word. We ask that you'll prosper the Word as we consider it tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, I intend to open our Lord's Day evenings with some considerations of the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. It has not been uncommon for me to think about that in the early days of the year. I look back at least for, well, I have a a stack of notes on different teachings on the Lord's Day from Sunday schools, from sermons to whatever, and I think it was about six or seven years ago. There's trouble with the math when you have to cross over a zero, but anyway. Um, But one message on the Lord's Day, not very many years ago at least, that opened the year in a Sunday evening. But I was impressed, you know, at the first of the year you want to get your reading kind of lined up. And I have a little volume on the Lord's Day by the Reverend Daniel Wilson. It's very contemporary. Uh, He preached these messages in 1827, so do the math, that was a while ago. Um, I don't want to preach his sermons, I'm certainly not doing that this evening, but I was just impressed with the pattern that he laid. He was a minister in the Church of England, which was orthodox in various points of its history, and you remember such as J.C. Ryle, uh, a hero of us Reformed people, noted among them, but he was a founder of a group I frankly haven't checked, I know at least they existed 30 years ago when this book was reprinted. He was a founder of a group called the Lord's Day Observance Society. Burdened some 200 years ago for the falling away of the Lord's people from properly observing the Lord's Day. And this little volume, it looks small, the print's pretty small, and the pages are pretty heavy, so it's a weighty tome in that regard. But it reflects seven sermons uh, with regard to the Lord's Day. And as I said, I don't want to preach his sermons, but he really surveys the scriptures and all the different, can we say, dispensations in which we find the scriptures unfolded for us to establish the perpetual obligation and duty of observing the Lord's day. And it is to that purpose that I want to direct our attention these opening Lord's Day evenings of the year. The Lord's day in our day has fallen on hard times to be sure. And we constantly are surrounded by negative examples. And so we need, I believe, frequent reminders. We need repeated instruction to call ourselves back. It's one of those subjects that it's easy to get lost in the controversy. Other believers, many that we know and love and would respect in so many ways, would have different opinions from us and from the Puritans' view of the Sabbath and of the Lord's Day. And we can engage in controversy and look at it from that perspective. And it's not unnecessarily or it's not necessarily wrong for us to do that, to, to argue in a right spirit, to defend, to understand, to examine ourselves and examine the Scriptures. But I want, though those pieces of it may come in, to really look more devotionally at the topic 
to look more devotionally on the theme and what the Lord's Day is to be for us. I really believe that our attitude toward the observance of the Lord's Day is going to serve perhaps as much, if not more, than anything else as an indicator of our attitude towards the Lord Himself. Now that's a pretty big statement. But I think if you look in Scripture, to be sure, in church history again, and then I think if you look in our own experience, that it bears out that that is true. The Lord's people's attitude toward the Lord's day is a reflection of their attitude toward Him. Some quotes I want to share with you this evening, and in some ways, particularly at least this evening, if not some of the other evenings, I don't know, there'll be more conversations, more studies than pure sermons, as it were. But listen to some of the introductory sentences to this volume. I mean, this introduction obviously was written recently and not in the day in which the sermons were preached. And some of this, well, it's got a little British aspect to it, as you'll see. But the one introducing these sermons says this, Sunday has become fun day. Empty pews have been replaced by bingo cues. For Lord's Day, read World's Day. Politicians and churchmen alike pour scorn on this ancient institution. Ironically, all too often those who argue for the retention of this Sabbath of rest are inconsistent. One group who mobilized much support to oppose the shops bill of 1986, I guess something like blue laws over here in former days, well, that group advocated for professional sports on Sunday. Who wants enemies when you have friends like that? Those who uphold the sanctity of the Lord's day have an honorable pedigree. John Bunyan, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Robert Mary McShane, Charles Head and Spurgeon are but a few. Thank God for Christians in secular society who have stood firm on the principle. Lord Shaftesbury, the great factory reformer, and William Wilberforce, renowned for the emancipation of the slaves, had no doubt on this score. On Sunday, Wilberforce went to church twice and would neither travel nor discuss politics except in gravest emergency. He always sought whilst a bachelor to spend a part of Sunday in self-examination, a part in acts of kindness to strangers or friends. Then after dinner, he would, quote, muster around me in, my idea, in idea my absent friends one by one to consider how I could do them any good and pray for them individually. Wilburn Orville Wright in 1903 built the first true aeroplane. It's interesting how the British spell that. At Kitty Hawk. One weekend, the king of Spain asked to see it fly. The king of Spain asked to see it fly, but was told they never flew on Sundays. The film industry was, has highlighted the courage of Eric Little, who would sacrifice an Olympic medal rather than run on the Lord's Day. What hypocrisy that the organizers of the Leeds Marathon should play the theme music from Chariots of Fire as competitors cross the finish line on Sunday. 
And of course, he goes on in his introduction. Well, we could supply countless other examples as this one introducing the book is done with failure to observe and really almost the mockery of the Lord's day in our times. I wanted to read tonight the record in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments in some ways to try and set the stage for our thoughts in these Lord's Day evenings. I don't know if you've ever looked at a poster that would reflect the Ten Commandments. Some discussion some time ago about public buildings and so forth with the Ten Commandments posted. But I encourage you sometime, you can do it right on the page of your Bible. I don't know why, but to me when I've seen posters of the Ten Commandments, it kind of stands out a little more. You see the relative brevity of the statement of each of the ten words with two very notable exceptions. The second commandment has to do with the use of images and the fourth commandment which has to do with the Lord's day. If you've had any experience in debates among the Lord's people, those are two commandments that even in recent experience we have stood for uh, and others have fought against. You remember, my chronometer again shows its inabilities, but the Mel Gibson passion film. How few there were that opposed that on the very principles, not merely of the content, uh, but on the very principle of the second commandment. It's almost lost to the modern church. And then, of course, you come to the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, largely lost to the modern church. We mentioned in Sunday school, it was something that was lost in principle long before it was lost in practice. The vestiges of Lord's Day observance hung around for a generation or more after the theology of the church had abandoned the consistent teaching on the Lord's Day. But those two commandments that many today would look at as legalistic. They would argue against any branch of the church that would stand for them and take such a stand, say, against the Passion film or something. That's, That's cold, that's hard, that's legalism. And of course, the Lord's Day is presented as legalistic. I say it's interesting to me the length to which the Lord goes in stating those two of the ten words. Because in many ways, if you spend any time studying the commandments, if you spend any time wrestling in your own soul over what's involved in the keeping and the breaking of those commandments, the second and the fourth are two of the most eminently spiritual of the commandments. There's a spiritual piece of them that if it's lost... The commandments, it's gone. I mean, the other commands, they're all spiritual. They all are an outflow of the one principle, the law of love, love to God and love to our neighbor. But how that love is to be expressed, how that worship is to be expressed, and the spiritual understanding and the spiritual necessities that are underneath the second and the fourth of the ten words, I say, is remarkable. But when we come to look at the Scriptures teaching on the Lord's Day, there are two questions that 
constantly come up. We've looked at them. I've looked at my notes over the many years now and different outlines, different methods of approach, sometimes often the same quotations from different writers. But the two questions that constantly occur and we have to work through in our teaching are these. Is the Sabbath perpetually binding? Well, there's the rub. Those in our generation that deny it look at the Sabbath as Jewish. It's part of the law of Moses. It was for the nation of Israel. It's not for us. And we wrestle against that. We argue against it. And pieces of that will come up in these studies. The second question is, how do I observe the Sabbath? It's one thing to recognize, all right, it's, it's part of God's law. It is perpetually binding. But, but how do I observe it? And then we can enter into the thousand and one debates on that. But there's a third question, and this question is perhaps more relevant. And it's what I want to begin with tonight, very briefly perhaps, but in a foundational way. And that question is this, what is the Sabbath? Yes, we have to ask, is it binding for all the generations, all the dispensations of the church? And if so, then how do we observe it? We get into some of the practical questions. But the bigger question that precedes these, the question that in some ways answers the other questions. I should have brought tonight a quote from an old Scotsman. He even had a good Scots name. His name was Kirk which, of course, means church. But um, his point was, if a man can answer this question of what is the Sabbath, then he's already answered the other question. How are you to observe it? Can I answer that question quite simply with these words? The Sabbath is a day of worship. The Sabbath is a day of worship. And we're to be worshipers of God every day. There's not a day in which we can say, well, we're taking this day off, we're taking six days off, we're on our own, we'll worship God Sunday and that'll be enough. That's not the point at all. The point is that from the creation of the world, God has ordained a day of worship for His people. A day that He patterns himself. And I'll ask you to turn with me all the way back to the book of Genesis. And I want to read tonight for our main scriptures the opening words of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis, maybe many of you have read recently in Genesis if you start the year in your Bible readings and read in order. But you know the first and second chapters, the account of creation, and then kind of the review of that, more fully the recapitulation theme that goes through. But verse or chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made. And He rested the seventh day from all His work which He had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His work, which God created and made. 
when we see this reference to the Sabbath, when we see this seventh day of creation, we see the fact that God set the day apart. God sanctified the day. You find immediately as you approach the subject of the Sabbath in Scriptures, that the Sabbath isn't a Jewish ordinance. In many ways, all the Sabbath deniers' case is built on the presupposition that the Sabbath is a Jewish ordinance. I was at a minister's meeting many years ago now, invited to and attended several times, Good Fellowship, a group really of Calvinistic Baptists from a couple of different states that would convene, I guess, once a quarter or so. And they had some Bible studies and then brief seasons of prayer together. And one time I went, one of the men did a study on the Sabbath, and he was decidedly anti-Sabbatarian. Well, everybody in the room looked around. I was the only Presbyterian sitting there. Kimbrough, well, what do you think? I said, well... He had an hour. Do I get an hour? There was no time. They said, well, next time uh, you can have one of the hours. They had three speakers each time for these days. So I prepared for the next time. I was going to be one of three speakers. The other two speakers got caught in a traffic jam coming down from Virginia. So I got three hours. Um, and between what I had prepared and the question and answer time, I think we pretty much took up three, so I got more than the other guy. Um, but to wrestle through with that, but his case was built on the fact that it, it's Jewish. And he referenced Nehemiah and his, his insistence upon the Sabbath. We're not quite that late in our prayer meeting studies of Nehemiah, but chapter 9, and just highlighted that it was a distinctly Jewish ordinance. Well, of course, the Lord's people of Israel are going to be obligated to be in obedience to God's Word. And you're going to find that the nation then is called upon to reflect and follow God's commands. There's a particular obligation that rests upon them. But the fact that Israel would be obligated to that as the covenant people doesn't mean that this institution originated with the nation of Israel. It's just that they as a nation would, of course, be obliged to obey. And many even of their ceremonial recognitions and their feasts and festive days would not only flow from the weekly Sabbath, but reflect upon it. And additional Sabbaths were instituted and called Sabbaths. And that's important for our reading of New Testament Scriptures and points of controversy, but none of that eliminates the fact that the Sabbath is not a Jewish ordinance. It's a creation ordinance. And we find, as we've read in Genesis, that God Himself recognized and observed the seventh day. And tonight, I just put that before you as the foundation of our reflections, the foundation of what we'll consider going forward. The Sabbath is a day of worship. Maybe at this point I should 
bring in some of the things that I was taught as a young fellow. I was taught that Sabbath meant seven. It was the seventh day. We don't observe the seventh day. We're not Sabbatarians. Kind of end of argument. But Sabbath doesn't mean seven. Sabbath comes from a word that means to cease. And so rather than it having to be the seventh day, it's a day in which there's a cessation from some things. And that perhaps gives us pause to consider and even look at the way it's recorded in the Ten Commandments. We can look at the Ten Commandments, we can look at the Fourth Commandment within them, we see the command there that's given to us to rest. And we can go through many Scriptures and see the command to rest, to to stop our labor that we are engaged in in those six days. To put to a halt our, our buying and selling, our getting gain, and all of those pieces of the Lord's day. But that's subordinate to something else. The command tells us to remember the Sabbath day To keep it holy. When we read in Genesis that God sanctified the day. The word there, to sanctify, to to set apart, it's the same word that's used for various pieces of the furniture that would be used in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were sanctified. They They were set apart for sacred use. You didn't use that table of showbread as a normal table out in the villages. No, it was a particular table. It was made in a particular fashion. It was made to symbolize particular things and it was set apart only to be used in the tabernacle. And so it is, we see the principle even carried out in Leviticus beyond the furniture and the different things that were part of the ceremonial law for Israel, that they as a people were set apart, sanctified, a peculiar people. We read in Genesis that God sanctified the seventh day. He set that day apart from the other days. Now when we read the account in Genesis of creation... We see God working on the six days. We see the particular sequence and unfolding of the the manner of His creation. And of course we come to the sixth day and we see the creation of man and we see man in God's image and the, the culmination of the things God made. Really the significance of that. I think when you look even at the fall, you look at the envy of Satan against this one that was to bear God's image instead of Him. This one that was made just for a little while, lower than the angels, that was ultimately to rule over Him. And His envy of that, and His hatred of that, and His attack upon that. But when God had finished those six days of creation, He ceased creating. He was finished creating. It's interesting, many that I read on this quoted John 5 uh, in their treatment of Genesis 2. 
And the Lord said, the Father works hitherto, and I work. And mentioned the Father's work, mentioned the Trinity, really God's work in the sustaining and the providential oversight of all the affairs of the universe. That God never ceases that work, if you will. But He ceased the work of creation. Did God cease that work because He was tired? I like to press that point when we look at Sabbath observance. Rest is a part of the Sabbath for us. That one day in seven in which we do give rest to the body and to the mind is important for us physically and mentally. But it is a subordinate thing. In many ways, it's an attending circumstance. And perhaps even with some significance because of the fall. But notice here, the Sabbath precedes the fall. The Sabbath isn't something God said, oh, now that He's sinned, we better put this as part of the mix too. The Sabbath was given at creation. And when God ceased from His labors, His work of creation, and God paused, if you will, in that seventh day and observed what He had made, He passed comment upon what He had done and said it is good. There's a pattern for us. We are to, in following after the example, have that day of reflection. A day again prior to the fall that was set apart for worship. To put aside the other things. Now that to me I think is, can we say, marvelous in its own right. For unfallen man, who wouldn't be hindered by the ground working against him, who wouldn't be hindered by any frustrations, who wouldn't be hindered by any outside influences to lean him towards evil, but have every encouragement and everything that he sees to rightly relate to God, that even in paradise, man was to have a day in which he ceased those other things. Sabbath meaning cessation, well, it brings up our whole point again. If we cease certain things, and when we come to application, the stuff we don't do on Sunday, again, that's subordinate to something else. There's a cessation of the other stuff for the purpose of giving ourselves to worship. There's a cessation of the other stuff for the purpose of giving ourselves to something else without distraction. There's a giving of this day in seven as a testimony, as an indication that we understand there's something more important than this. There are a lot of what-ifs when we consider Adam. What if he hadn't fallen? 
What if he had succeeded in the covenant of works? What if he had eaten of the tree of life instead of the tree of knowledge? We don't know. We don't know how long he would have stayed in that state in which he was capable of falling. We don't know how long it would have been until he entered a state of glorification in which he would be incapable of falling as we will be in that day. So they're interesting, I guess, theological questions we can't answer. But I say, even prior to the entrance of sin, the Sabbath was given and was a gift to God's people. When we fight against the Sabbath, when we fight against a day of worship, when we grudgingly, as it were, say, no, I want part of this day for my stuff too. If you read our Westminster Standards, you read any of the standard Orthodox theologians and preachers of days gone by, centuries gone by, you see their reflection on the obligations, the blessings, the duties, the benefits of the day. To say that, well, we won't give that time, it's really showing that we're not interested in proper worship. To take the day is to recognize, no, this is what I'm created for. This is what I'll spend eternity doing. And this day is set for me in this earth to look forward to that time. Hebrews brings us to that very powerfully in its treatment of the Sabbath day. Sabbath is a day of worship. Can I read you from Matthew Henry's commentary on these words we've read in Genesis 2? He says this, He rested on that day, that being God, and took a complacency in His creatures and then sanctified it. And appointed us on that day to rest and take a complacency in the Creator. And His rest is, in the fourth commandment, made a reason for ours. We don't use the word complacency that way anymore. How do we use the word complacency? I asked Siri today, and well, she only knew the modern usage. I guess there's still a place for a real dictionary. But complacency, according to her, and now I'm forgetting the computer's definition, but it, it gave the idea of a satisfaction that was inappropriate. It's like the ball team that was complacent. Oh, we can beat those guys. We don't have to practice this week. So their complacency led them to a satisfaction with how good they were, and, well, they got beat. Well, that's not the complacency here. You see in doctrinal writings and in older writings, the use of complacency here, it's a satisfaction that's not an inappropriate satisfaction. It's an entirely appropriate satisfaction and contentment, an observance of the worthiness of something. And God here takes a complacency. There's a contentment. There's a satisfaction in the work He's performed. 
And He calls upon us to use the day for a complacency, a satisfaction in Him, a proper reflection upon Him. But Matthew Henry continues, Observe then one, the solemn observance of one day in seven as a day of holy rest and holy work to God's honor is the indispensable duty of all those to whom God has revealed His holy Sabbaths. Two, the way of Sabbath sanctification is the good old way. Jeremiah 6.16 Sabbaths are as ancient as the world. And I see no reason to doubt that the Sabbath being now instituted in innocency was religiously observed by the people of God throughout the patriarchal age. We'll talk about that. Some of the opponents of Sabbath keeping say, well, the patriarchs, we don't see much about the Sabbath there. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But he says, thirdly, the Sabbath of the Lord is truly honorable. And we have reason to honor it. Honor it for the sake of its antiquity, its great author, the sanctification of the first Sabbath by the Holy God Himself and by our first parents in innocency and in obedience to Him. Fourthly, the Sabbath day is a blessed day, for God blessed it, and that which He blesses is blessed indeed. God has put an honor upon it, has appointed us on that day to bless Him, and has promised on that day to meet us and to bless us. You ever think about that perspective on the day of worship? That God has honored the day and He's chosen in that day to meet with us His people? Maybe it's an indication of the condition of our hearts when we're happy enough not to have a meeting with Him. Maybe to avoid meetings with Him. He says, fifthly, the Sabbath day is a holy day, for God has sanctified it. He separated and distinguished it from the rest of the days of the week, and He's consecrated it and set it apart to Himself in His own service and honor. Though it is commonly taken for granted that the Christian Sabbath we observe, reckoning from the creation, is not the seventh but the first day of the week, yet being a seventh day, and we in it celebrating the rest of God the Son, and the finishing of the work of our redemption, we may and ought to act faith upon this original institution of the Sabbath day, and to commemorate the work of creation, to honor the great Creator who is therefore worthy to receive on that day blessing and honor and praise from all religious assemblies. And Henry continues on, but these are the common observations believers of days gone by. This is the common expression of the churches of the Reformation. You read our Westminster Standards at great length dealing with the observance of this day. And yet we find that it's a day that's fought against. It's a day even among those that would claim to observe it. It's one that constantly, it's one of the reasons I want to bring us to this at the opening of this year and to take a more extended look than just the one-off messages. I heard that phrase in Northern Ireland several times this week, the one-off this or the one-off that. But it's one that I feel in my own heart. 
And I just put to you to think about that. Sunday for me is a busy day. I have two messages to prepare and bring. Those obligations force me to have my thoughts and my activity directed toward, well, the Bible, the things of God, kind of. And yet if I, with those obligations, with those regular duties, can find a flesh that can still kick against the day, Maybe not openly, but yet wrestle with the happy observance of the day. And I think we can all confess it is a perennial need. And as I said, we're surrounded by negative examples. And we can get caught up in the debates. We can get caught up in the lists and the check boxes and the this and the that. And we can, once we agree to it, then we can embrace a legal spirit and we're ready to go after the other guy. And even then, we're missing the core principle. Why do we on the Sabbath cease other stuff? Because the Sabbath is a day of worship. It's a day God has set aside for us to not be distracted with the other things so that we can, without distraction, focus on worshiping Him. And that's a telling thing if we understand that. And then we find ourselves kicking against it. Well, that's where we need to be humbled brought face to face, again, not merely with this one part of the law, but with the spiritual state of heart and mind that our attitude toward this one part of the law can really reflect. So pray with me that the Lord will in these opening Sabbath evenings of the year help us, not in a harsh way, not in a legalistic way, not really even in an argumentative way, but in a gospel way, to look at the Lord's day and ask the Lord to bless that day to us, that we might come with anticipation and expectation to His house on His day, and that we might be quite happy to be here instead of elsewhere, that we might be happy to meet with Him And to sense Him meeting with us. I closed many of the messages I preached in Northern Ireland on that theme I said this morning on truth falling in the streets. I closed with the example of Daniel, well not Daniel, but the three companions in the fiery furnace. And the words of Nebuchadnezzar, Didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? Behold, I see four men loose walking about. Just that phrase, I see four. The presence of God with us, particularly in days of trouble, particularly in an hour of trial like that trial and their faithfulness that had them cast into the fire, Well, if we want the presence and help of God, if we look around and we see trouble, 
We see potential difficulties. We see hard decisions for us as Christians in the days ahead. Well, if we seek and want and expect God's presence for that fourth man to be with us in the fire, then shouldn't we have and seek something of His presence when the fire hasn't come yet? To be with Him now that He might be with us then? So let's look at these studies again, not with a legal heart, not with a controversial heart, but with a gospel heart. This is something God set apart at the very order of creation. The first cycle of days, He set apart a day day of worship, a day different than the rest of the days. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come tonight and we pray that you might give us gospel hearts to consider this you've placed in the very heart of your law. In many ways, it's part of the bridge from the first to the second tables of the law. And we pray that you might give us those gospel hearts rightly to seek and rightly to understand what you've said about this day. We pray and ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.